This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. I'm Angie Bassiuni. The biggest word in retail right now is omnichannel. That's the seamless integration of online and offline shopping. When omnichannel is done right, a shopper can go to her favorite store to find that perfect pair of winter boots. And while she's there, she can check reviews online on her cell phone and see if the other store across town has her pair in black in her size. Omnichannel creates a frictionless world for demanding consumers. But for businesses, building that omnichannel network while also developing new products can be a daunting challenge. Joining me today are Dr. Santiago Galino, a professor in the Department of Operations, Information, and Decisions here at Wharton, and Dr. Robert Roderkirk, who is an operations management professor at Rotterdam School of Management and Erasmus University, which is in the Netherlands. They've been researching this challenge of developing new products in an omnichannel world, and they found some best practices based on the success of companies that are getting it right. And they're here today to share some of that information with us. Dr. Galino, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. And Dr. Roderkirk, thank you for being here. Thank you. So one of the aspects I really like about your study is that it's prescriptive for retailers. You're not just telling them they need to be omnichannel in new product development, but you're actually handing them a research-based roadmap on how to get there. You've got seven recommendations in your paper. We're going to try to go through a few of them today. Let's start with the customer angle. So you advise that companies get more input from their customers earlier on in the product development process and even make them co-creators of the products. What does that mean and how is that different from the past? I'll start with you, Dr. Galino. Yes, so I think this is a very uh, interesting point. And, and, and in your question, I, I would agree that many of these things are not completely new or things that companies were not doing before uh, the, the, I think that the, the change is the extent at which this becomes available to companies that before was harder uh, for them to, to, to get to those uh, co-creation opportunities. I think in the article, we uh, explore the, the Lego ideas uh, or, or, or Nike with the Nike by you. I mean, these are companies that, of course, have been keeping an eye on customers and the things they like for, they like for many years. But now they have this opportunity that the digital platform is giving them to invite them very early on in the process or even watch how customers can create new products or combine their existing products in different ways, creating effectively a new product. So I think that uh, this allows companies, many brands, to learn from actual customers, but also learn from people that eventually are not going to buy and understand why they're not buying now and what they can do to, to become a customer in the future. Another key difference, I will say, or, 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 or change is the volume and the speed of data that the companies can access from the, these uh, customers and how companies inform their creativity and the new product development process based on this new uh, new volume of data. So I think that these two aspects, the, the, the idea of learning not only from customers, but for the non-customers and the volume and speed uh, at which the companies receive the data 
are really critical in this new process. That's really interesting that you're saying it not just it doesn't just help them with customers that want to buy from them. It can help them understand the customers that don't want to buy from them and perhaps what they can do to bring them on board. Yes, yes. I, I think that that is uh, an aspect that in the past has been always very hard to track because you can see uh, what is the transaction that actually happened in a physical store and all the conversations with the customer representative and all the things that the customer try but then end up not buying are usually hard to track. In a digital platform and in an omnichannel context, this is uh, easier to access. And if the company is focused on the customer and the interactions, this can be opportunity. So Dr. Ruderkirk, I'm going to ask you about that too. Can you explain how a company can make a customer uh, a co-creator in the product? I mean, is this beyond just sort of your traditional focus group when you're trying to bring something to market? Yeah, so focus groups are very static. They are very expensive to run. You often have to run multiple ones. Um, but often their customers are often quite intrinsically motivated to contribute to a company or to contribute to its innovation process. So it's really about activating those uh, those customers. Now, Santiago already explained that uh, getting access to customers has become easier using all sorts of digital platforms. And but you're seeing companies connect to their, their customers in, in new ways, um, often forming, for instance, online communities. So a great example is Lego, uh, the toy manufacturer that has uh, been extremely successful in creating an online community and has actually leveraged that community for um, new product development ideas. They often hold contests called Lego Ideas in which uh, people can actually contribute a, an ID for a new toy set. And not only do people contribute the IDs, the community also votes on these IDs. So you instantaneously generate IDs and actually vet them uh, with your uh, potential customers. And these customers are often extremely creative, right? So you're using a sort of an outside-in innovation. You're almost outsourcing your innovation process. And so... Often it's it's very simple. You you have to appeal to their intrinsic motivation. You can often also apply extrinsic motivation, such as in the case of Lego, they actually um, provide the winning uh, entry with 1% of the revenues that's made from the product. They also get credited on the packaging. Uh, so that's quite easy. And, and also online focus groups themselves have kind of gotten an update to what we call uh, online focus group 2.0 where basically there is like an online kind of a gated community with a moderator and there's a lot of gamification components in there so for instance consumers have to provide feedback on a new ice cream taste for unilever and the ones that actually come up with you know the best recommendations or feedback they actually get to see the new product that uh, unilever is at that moment making so um and then instantaneously they get feedback on that so so focus groups themselves have become um, more like online communities. Um, and, and so very exciting developments on that front. That is definitely the case. Anyone who's got uh, little kids or big kids in their life know how much they love Legos and, and this idea that they're invested, they're coming in on the ground floor on product development, they get to have a voice in it. That's very exciting for customers who are really who really enjoy a particular product. You're right about that. So let's, uh, let's also talk about uh, trade partners. In your paper, you both say that uh, retailers need to widen their scope and they need to get more input from their trade partners. So not just customers, but also trade partners. What kind of input are we talking about? I'll start with you, Dr. Ruderkirk. Well, so uh, as a manufacturer, manufacturers typically how they they've, uh, 
uh, organized their new product development process that they lot of, they they do a lot of marketing research, right? For like focus groups that you mentioned, they bring consumers in for let's say a taste test or whatever. Um, but it's still kind of a push demand to innovation, right? Where the, the manufacturer starts the, the innovation process and then solicits feedback and based on that screens uh, interesting ideas. Now, trade partners actually have often much better access to the consumer, right? Selling through a retailer means you broaden your distribution, but it also means you give up some of the direct access to your customers. Now, a retailer could sit on the data itself and not share it or actually use it for private label development. So let's take Amazon as an example. Amazon, of course, has used leveraged data uh, uh, obtained by selling big brands through its platform uh, by actually developing it to develop its own brands. Uh, Amazon currently already has more than 100 brands, often under the radar. But a retailer could also take the point of view of sharing that data or sharing the insights from that data with manufacturers. And good examples there are Alibaba's Tmall platform that actually has started a marketing research brand, which they call it the Tmall Insight Center, that actually shares data with leading manufacturers to jumpstart their innovation process. A very simple example, Alibaba was mining its data and saw that consumers that were looking for chocolate were often also buying spicy food. But they made a very simple suggestion to Snicker to kind of explore this avenue of combining chocolate with spice and they actually came up with a spicy Snickers, and that turned out to be one of the most successful TPG introductions in China. So actually leveraging this, this data that a, that a retailer is sitting on and sharing it with manufacturer could lead to much better innovations. And then the retailer has kind of the first right, right, to, to sell that product. So they, they're the first to, to be able to sell it. And another great example is here in the Netherlands where Cool Blue was actually analyzing its its online data and noticed what consumers were looking at when they were searching for a laptop. And, and not only do they see what people buy, they also see what consumers search for and cannot find. And so based on the filter behavior, search behavior, they noticed that consumers were looking for a certain combination of specifications that Apple was currently not providing. But these customers were very interested in Apple. So they actually went came, went uh, to Apple and said, we would actually like you to make a new MacBook. That's kind of a made to order uh, for us because we believe there's a lot of demand. Apple was actually very uh, skeptical about this idea because, you know, well, we, we know what customers want. Uh, and then actually Cool Blue blacked up their, uh, their claim by saying, we're going to order a lot right away off the shelf. And it turned out to be a great success uh, up to, to the point that uh, Apple sent its uh, vice president of sales to our very small country to figure out what these guys were doing here. So this is a great example where a retailer is actually using data on customer preferences and sharing that. The second component is operational considerations. A retailer knows very well the difficulties involved in uh, selling the product and shipping the product. Uh, right. Just for instance, in Holland, a retailer knows very well what the size of a, of a mailbox is. So a, an international manufacturer that doesn't have that local market knowledge would not know that. And by slightly adjusting the packaging, it would be immediately be something that could put in inside a, through a door that would lower um, transportation cost or delivery cost. So I think customer preferences and operational considerations are typically the data that retailers have and could share with manufacturers. Dr. Galino, I'm going to ask you about that as well. Are, I mean, this sounds really great, but are there any downsides to manufacturers and retailers working together? I think that the mindset in the past 
will suggest that these tend to be uh, confrontational uh, or, or competing relationship. And, and, I, and I think that what we are seeing today is that when these are seen as collaboration and as opportunity to partnership, it, it's when the customer gets the best of the two. Uh, I think this is nowadays even more evident when you see retailers that are platforms. If you if you if you think of a of a digital platform, the customer of the platform is both the end customer that is going to buy the product, but also those vendors that need to be attracted to place the products in the platform. And I think that this is a game changer for the role of what we can think of the traditional retailer now transform into a platform that sees customers on both sides. The customer that ultimately is going to buy the product, but the customer, the traditional vendor, that will need to see the value of being present in that platform. So I think that you're right that in the past, we, we used to think about the relationship between manufacturer and retailer as something that has a competing nature, but in my view, going forward, we should be expecting to see more collaboration, more data sharing, and, and an opportunity to do both of these to grow. Your your research is really, it's widening the circle around retail to get to that omni-channel state. So let's keep talking about that. Your paper also talks about, um, you recommend that companies need to be more operational to to think outside of just marketing and sales, the traditional route for new product development. They need to involve departments that always that don't always get considered. Can you talk about that, please, Dr. Galino? Yes, so I think that one, one clear example of this is when we think about the, the packaging and the delivery process of the product. I mean, in the past, when we ignore the, the omnichannel component, all of this is going to happen from a distribution warehouse to a retail store to the customer uh, home. But nowadays, this path is not as clean as it used to be. And in many cases, we are going to have companies that are delivering products directly to the customers. And this requires involving in the development process areas that traditionally might not have a lot to say, but today they have a lot to say about the delivery of the product, what can be more efficient, what can be more convenient for the customer in terms of how they receive the product, what can be more cost-effective, and, and it, what can be safer in terms of making sure that the product arrives in, in good shape and in, uh, in, 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 in the condition that the customer expects. And also, I would argue, the way that the customer wants to present itself once the customer opens the product at home, which is a very different experience that uh, compared to the one that you go to the store, you get to meet the sales representative, you talk with them, they package the thing for you and you take it home. There is a lot of uh, emotional engagement and learning of the product in that process. Nowadays, we receive a box at home, we open the box, and that's when the magic happens. And I think that companies that are being more uh, thoughtful and creative about that change in, in the omnichannel uh, layout are, are thinking about how they can create the wow factor the moment that someone opens the box, or even more uh, more more thought on not only the innovation in the product itself, but in how the product is going to be delivered. 
There's one example that I like a lot, being from Argentina, grilling and barbecuing is, is part of our DNA. And there is a company, Spark Grills, that they developed uh, a new set of grills. It's fully designed for a, for a, for a digital uh, experience in terms of finding and buying the product. But they have also redesigned the charcoal that you use. It's instead of the traditional briquettes that you find, this is like a big brick that you buy and it's much more compact and easy to deliver. So the company sells the grill and the newly designed uh, brisket that you can use with that grill and the delivery becomes a lot more efficient, cleaner for the customer to handle. So I think that that is one example of many of Mm -hmm. companies that have thought beyond the product itself, but also the whole experience in a context where I'm sitting, I'm trying to sell grills online without uh, without the need to visit a traditional store. I can tell you as a shopper that that what you mentioned, that wow factor, that certainly is a, a game changer for, for people, especially right now when we're receiving so many packages at home. Uh, Dr. Rudekirk, I'm going to ask you about that as well. I think there was a, a, an example in your paper uh, out of the Netherlands about the delivery of Heineken. Um, can you talk about that example as maybe another uh, way to get other departments besides marketing and sales in the last mile of the product? Yes, so uh, this involves online grocery retail. We, uh, we have a couple of large uh, conventional retailers that started online grocery retail, but we also have a, a completely digital native online grocery retailer. So they're only online. They're called Picnic. They're currently number two in the Netherlands. And their model is basically centered on operational excellence. So they start, instead of thinking we're going to offer the largest assortment, they it was all about efficiency. And what they do is they drive around in these little electric milk carts. So basically, it's almost like the Milkman 2.0. Mm-hmm. Um, those carts have a lot of advantages. One is that um, they can navigate narrow streets, cobblestone streets here in the Netherlands, so they can quickly enter, for instance, the Amsterdam canals. And that means that they can do about six deliveries an hour compared to about three or four of their main competitor. There's one downside. They're very small. They're very narrow. So there shouldn't be too much wind. That's one problem. But Mm -hmm. the number two problem is that certain big bulky products, and those are the products that people typically like to order online, um, cannot be carried in those carts. And one of those products is actually a crate of 24 bottles of Heineken beer. So 24 bottles of 0.333 liters of beer. So this is very sizable crate and it doesn't fit in the cart. So what they did is Picnic actually reached out to Heineken and said, can you help us think about how we can maybe redesign or come up with a sort of an alternative that that would fit in our in our carts? And uh, they came up with something that's called a quarter crate. These are six bottles that are held together by a piece of cardboard. Now that's not new, but cardboard used to be quite thick because you had to carry that all the way from the store to home. But now you only have to carry it from that small electric vehicle that stops right in front of your home to your kitchen counter. So the cardboard can be a much thinner so now they can actually fit four of those in one tray, and that equates that comes back to 24 bottles of beer. And you don't have the crate; you have very thin cardboard. And so this is in many ways a, let's say, a product development that was driven by operational considerations. And I think that's what Omnichannel is about. It's about realizing that every different channel comes with its specific operational challenges, and that has profound uh, um, implications for packaging. In a store, packaging has to be has to have some kind of selling factor, an advertising factor. That's much less 
uh, important when it's online delivery, when it's more about you know making transportation efficient. And so you see that these kinds of considerations should be at the beginning of our product development process, not not at the end. Where operations people used to come in at the end, now we've you know we've just the marketing and the innovation guys have designed the products. Now it's up to you to make sure that we can transport it. Now we're going to factor that in from the very beginning. That's a really great point, and that benefits all the departments in a company. And, and increasingly, trade partners demand this kind of operational efficiency. It's not just that the company itself wants to. Uh, Santiago mentioned some great points about the wow factor of consumers, but it's also that these platforms and the retailers through which you sell are pushing manufacturers to think along with them on operational efficiency and scoring higher. And that also means you get a more preferred placement on the website and that directly translates to higher sales. It's everybody gets a seat at the table and gets some input into new product development. And that's that's sort of that's been a recurring theme uh, in the business world lately, especially with digital, with omnichannel. Um, and there's another recurring theme, and that's about the sharing of data. And you guys mentioned that in your paper as well. I'm going to quote uh, my favorite sentence from that section is you say data should not be sequestered. What do you mean by that? And why should it be sequestered? What is the, the result of, of sharing it? Uh, I'll start with you, Dr. Rodekirk. Well, I think for many companies, it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction to sit on top of their data, to be very, uh, you know, treated as proprietary. It's a, called a competitive advantage, but I think data is only a competitive advantage if you're able to mine it. Uh, and so in Dutch, we all have a saying that translates to you can only really grow something when you're able to multiply, and the multiplication comes in sharing it with, uh, with your chain partners. Uh, still, a lot of product innovations fail, and that's very costly to the whole chain, to the retailer. You basically have all of this uh, this shelf space that you're not efficiently using. You have to phase out the product, return it to the manufacturer, or you know sell it on against the reduced prices. So, sharing data with a chain partner as a retailer uh, means that they get better insights into customer preferences. That translates directly into better innovations that are are better for the retailer. They also have a better fit with the customers of the retailer. It's not a one size fits all anymore. Increasingly, for instance, in grocery retail, um, retailers are not accepting to just adopt a product and put it throughout their whole chain, but they they more focused are going to launch that in certain stores, which they believe the product has the most potential, the highest potential. And only when it's proven there, they'll roll it out to to, to the larger chain. So it's kind of odd in, in still in some sectors, and, and grocery retail is one of them, where the large players uh, do demand their manufacturers to take a data-driven approach. But at the same time, they don't really share the full data. They will share it at a very high aggregation level. They mask it in such a way. So you're basically giving your chain partners kind of suboptimal instruments, but you demand optimal innovation. And that's, and that's odd. So you have to think about how to to work together to grow the pie. And growing the pie is sharing data. And obviously that comes with trust. You are in competition with your private label. So it, it does mean that you have to make good arrangements for that. But sharing it is typically much better than sitting on it and, and not doing anything with it. Because then a competitive advantage becomes a competitive disadvantage, I'd say. Yes, so I think that uh, Robert's points are, are relevant. And I see a, a connection to your earlier question in terms of the, the, the new type of relationship between the retailers and the manufacturers. I think that trust is something that Robert mentioned, and I, I think it's key here. And in terms of this uh, data sharing and data collaboration, uh, it's hard to think about that without trust. And in my experience, a good approach is incrementality. Right, so uh, you don't need to start with the biggest, most ambitious project the first day. 
there are a lot of low-hanging fruit, small sharing opportunities that can prove the trust and the value in contexts where it's relatively easy to find a win. And I will recommend that path for these, uh, if you want all relationships transitioning into more productive relationships by building this trust in an incremental way. What's next for this line of research, Dr. Galino? Well, I mean, for me, I mean, this this is a fascinating area. I think that the, the digital transformation in retail, omnichannel in particular, has been over the last few years fantastic to follow and, and study. I, I think that going forward, we're going to see more innovation and in particular, more refined issues like the ones we're discussing today, like how the data sharing is going to happen, how the companies are going to rethink specifically the delivery of products, how they can make uh, these communities of customers that are sharing their knowledge in in creating new products. I I think we're going to see more of this going forward, and and, and I'm extremely excited to learn from managers on the field doing these things and hopefully be able to contribute with some of my research along these lines. Dr. Ruderkirk, what about you? What do you hope to explore next in this line of research? Yeah, so I fully share uh, Santiago's excitement. Um, we're typically never short of things to talk about on this on this topic. Mm-hmm. I I think we're in the middle of uh, of a huge influx of new technology in retail. Uh, I think uh, the current pandemic, uh, if there's any silver lining to it, you see a lot of innovation currently in retail, uh, which I think is going to be very much on the intersection of uh, of design, of architecture, of store design. Uh, of effectively using technologies to help consumers. But you also see that even during a pandemic, we still want to visit the store. Even with a mouthpiece on, there's still enough to carry us to the store because stores are, are great places. They they offer us uh, a lot of inspiration, uh, experience, etc. But at the same time, we don't have to make things needlessly complicated. So efficiency is also very important to consumers. So how are we going to effectively use technology to help consumers find the product that provide the best fit with them, uh, doing that in a, in a way that uh, contributes to their to their day, right? A, a beautiful experience. Um, all of these new technologies are, are uh, leading to a huge, an abundance of new data, and they're often unstructured. And I think they provide a lot of interesting opportunities for us to, to improve retail operations. And so I'm very excited to, to explore all of these avenues in the coming years. There's a lot there. There's a lot to mine there um, because omnichannel isn't just a buzzword. It really is the path forward for brands that are trying to stay relevant in the digital age. Uh, so, gentlemen, I really want to thank you for being here and bringing us this valuable insight. Thank you. Thank you. This was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more just like it, you can find us online at Knowledge at Wharton. I'm Angie Bassiuni. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.